Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Before we get into the Word, um, we got a thank you note this week, and I wanted to read it um, to everybody. It says, Dear Liberty Church, I just wanted to thank you personally for the barbecue you hosted in my neighborhood on September 21st with Link. Everyone was so friendly, and the food was delicious. It was so kind of you. Thank you for what you do for the community. Sincerely, Debbie. P.S. I was the one with the scissors for the popsicles. <laughs> so that's cool. That's cool. Praise the Lord. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 18 with me. This is in verse 1. It says, At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we uh, today are going to continue looking at the biblical doctrine of conversion. And the scriptures identify two aspects to conversion. The first aspect we've been looking at the last few weeks, which has been saving faith, or what some might call a biblical faith. The second aspect is Repentance, and we're going to spend today and next week looking at that. Faith and repentance, they go hand in hand. And to understand conversion, what we're really trying to understand is what does a person have to do to be saved? What is involved, really, from a human perspective in salvation? So first, let's define conversion. A conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and placed our trust in Christ for salvation. That's how one theologian put it. So what does it mean to be converted? And what is actually converted? Is it only thoughts? Is it only a change of mind? Is it simply adding facts to our knowledge base and converted from what? And converted to what? Okay, all of those questions. But... At the bottom line is this, if there is conversion, something has indeed changed. Something has converted from one thing to another, which brings us back to the verse we just read in Matthew 18. I want you to look at verse 3, where he says, unless you turn, that's what the ESV says. Now, if you're using the NASB or the New King James or the King James, it actually says the word converted. The NIV says change. Okay. That's what the word conversion, it literally means a turning. A turning from something and a turning to something. Because when we talk about um, conversion, we have two aspects. There's the faith aspect, that's turning to Christ. Okay. So when you have a saving faith, you turn to Christ. But when you turn to something, you're also turning away from something. And that is the repentance aspect. You're turning away from sin that's repentance, turning towards Christ, that's having faith in him. It's really two sides of the same coin. And Jesus makes it clear here what's necessary for salvation. It's that turning or the converting. Now, conversion is a one-time experience. It is a one-time experience. It is a one-time experience. How many time experiences is it? Once. Once, okay? You are converted once. It occurs in a person whereby their thoughts 
desires, inclinations, and actions are fundamentally changed. Okay? That is different than sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is a lifelong process whereby you become more and more like Christ. Okay? That's sanctification. Conversion, one-time experience. Some people don't like repentance being a part of conversion. I might talk a little bit about it next week. Um, but at its root, if you, if you take away repentance from conversion, you've really mistaken what we talked about, the different types of faith a few weeks ago. You've mistaken it for just mere intellectual assent. Because you're saying no change is necessary. You don't really have to do anything. Just, just assent to what's being talked about, and that's salvation. So that's a misunderstanding if you start to remove action being required for a conversion experience. God is doing a work, okay? And it's not just a work in the mind. It's not just a work in the heart. It's a work in the mind and the heart that produces something in your life. It takes away bad things, and it produces good things. This is why Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. Look there with me. Starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Okay, past tense. Such were some of you. Not some are. No, some were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? Amen. People who are saved are people who are changed. It's that simple. People who are saved are people who are changed. And the word conversion itself means a change has occurred. If you went to the biblical writers and you're like, hey, I'm cheating on my wife and, and I cuss all the time and I'm not really even interested in going to church or anything like that. I mean, but I'm saved. They'd look at you and be like, you're not saved. You don't really believe. I remember when I was, I was younger, I was in my teens. I remember my grandparents on my dad's side, they were telling me that they had switched their political party affiliation. I'm not going to tell you which one. <laughs> <laughs> But they switched their political party affiliation. And if I had said to them, um, so now you believe all these things that your new party believes, right? And they said, no. Well, I mean, that'd be odd, right? I mean, you're switching your party affiliation. Why? Because you, you identify more with that party platform. And uh, <clears throat> what if after a major election I said, hey, we just had an election. Who'd you vote for? And they're like, oh, the, the, our old party. I'd be like, what? I thought you were, you were part of the new party. You said you, you switched your affiliation. I mean, I'd be scratching my head. That would be odd. When, when true conversion, my point is, is when true conversion occurs, a change occurs. And it's not just lip service. Action follows. Action follows. So it's not just thoughts. That's part of it. But, but it's action as well. So this is why you can't separate the repentance from the conversion. Because conversion means changes occurred on the inside, but it's also seen on the outside. Now, think about the Old Testament prophets for a second, because repentance was integral 
to their message. In fact, what were the Old Testament prophets primarily doing? I mean, they primarily, a lot of times when you think of the Old Testament prophets, what is that about? Oh, they were, you know, forecasting the future. They're telling what's going to happen in the future. And that's what you hear about the prophets. And, and, and they did that. Um, but that's actually a, a, a relatively small portion. What they're doing over and over again, pick any book in the Old Testament from one of the prophets. You read through it. Just pick a small one. You can do it today. Whoever the message is directed to, normally it's Israel, what's the message? Repent. Repent. That is primarily what the prophets did. They set, stood up and said the unpopular things. And they said what Israel was doing, where they were failing, where they were going wrong. It was a message of repentance. Then the prophets come along. What, what, when did it happen to the prophets? They, they didn't stone the prophets because they were like, hey, in the future such and such thing is going to happen and it's going to be amazing and great. They stoned them because they didn't like the message they were hearing, which was repent and turn from your ways. They didn't want to hear that. So then the prophets come, and, and they did stone some of them. Then John the Baptist comes, and what's the first words out of his mouth? I want you to see it. Matthew, chapter 3. Look at this in Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are the first words out of his mouth that Matthew records. Repent. Repent. He's following what? In line with the Old Testament prophets. Continuing on the message. Okay? There's this 400 roughly years of silence from the last prophet, Malachi, to when John the Baptist comes on the scene. But does the message change? No. John wants people saved. He wants people following the Lord. He wants people walking in God's ways. So the message is repent. The message is change. Here's how Luke looks at it. Look at Luke chapter 3. Here's how it goes. Verse 1, In the fifteenth year of chapter 3 of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism of repentance. And I think about my conversion. I don't know what age you guys were when you got saved. I, I was 18. My conversion, everything was new. There was an awe and a wonder, literally, to the world. It was, it was like the scales had fallen off. And remember... If you've ever seen The Christmas Carol, the, the movie, or even the play here that we've done, uh, remember what Scrooge says after he wakes up and he's like, oh, wow, I have like a second chance, right? And he's like, oh, I feel like a baby. You remember that? I, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts in that story because what a perfect picture of true change in someone, right? The innocence. That's what Jesus is hitting on. You have to become like a child. This innocence. But it's like this newness of life. And that's what I felt like. And here's this 65-year-old man, Scrooge, right? He's feeling like a baby. Right? Why? Because he was born again, so to speak. That's what happened to me. Remember the first time your eyes were opened to the gospel? Do you remember it? I once was blind. 
but now I see. And let me just encourage you, friends, don't lose the freshness of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. There is a beauty to it. There is a splendor to it. There is a glory to it. And Jesus, if you have trusted in him, Jesus has awakened you. He's awakened you. And he still wants you to act awakened. I want you to see this in Ephesians 5. Are you all with me? This is Paul. He says, verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And if you've been awakened, you've had that light of Christ put upon you. He's shining on you. And we need to be careful because I think the danger for us, all of us, is we can fall back to sleep. Right? Well, that's happened. It's time for us to wake back up. It's time for us to wake back up. And if we've been in a stupor, we need to wake up. We need to get out of bed. We need to stop sleeping. You shake off the drowsiness. Rub your eyes. Start living for the kingdom. We need to get real for Jesus. Okay? The time is short. We were worshiping today. I was in the back. The time is short. And people here right now in this room might not be with us in a year or five years or ten years. The time is short. We don't have time to be in a drunken stupor. We don't have time to be asleep. Because there's, there's people out there that are dying. There's probably people in here that are dying. And God wants us to be the ambassadors that minister to those people. And God wants us living. But if we're acting like we're asleep and we're walking around in a stupor, guess what? What do you do in your sleep? You dream, maybe. You don't do much, right? You've got to be awake to be active for the kingdom and doing things for Jesus, okay? So, wake up. Repentance. Look at Jesus. So, you got the Old Testament prophets, then John the Baptist. What's John the Baptist doing for Jesus? He's preparing the way, right? He's preparing the way. So, Jesus comes on the scene. Look at Matthew chapter 4. I want, you to, I want you to follow this, so go back to chapter 3 just for a second so you can see the, the, the chronology of things going on. At the very end of chapter 3 and verse 13, it's the baptism of Jesus. All right, so John the Baptist is on the scene. Jesus goes to John. He's baptized. Um, what happens immediately after that? Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you got that whole um, story going on starting in chapter 4 and verse 1. Then, verse 12, is when Jesus begins what people call his public ministry. This is, his public, this is the beginning of his ministry, publicly. Okay? So, he starts it in verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the very beginning of his ministry, repentance is the first word out of his mouth. He's following in line with the biblical prophets of old. We see the same thing in Mark chapter 1. I want you to see this. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So part of preaching the gospel is calling people to repentance. Over and over again, this is the message that Jesus shares, he preaches, and he teaches to his followers and to the crowds at large. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is he calling them to? To repentance. And one of my favorite verses, Luke 13, 3, I've shared this with people as I've witnessed to them many times. Luke 13, 3, he says this, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if I'm sharing with someone, I said, and Jesus thought it was so important, he says it again two verses later. Verse 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He wanted them to get the idea. Guess what? you got to repent, or you're going to die. Okay? So repent. Notice one more thing I want you to see in Mark 6. And he called the twelve and began... Uh, did I tell you where in Mark 6? Sorry, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the first time that Jesus is sending out the disciples on their own to do ministry. What's the message? It's a message of repentance. A message of repentance. Listen, Jesus, because Jesus wanted people saved, he preached repentance. And because Jesus wanted people saved, he had his disciples preach repentance. And because he wanted people saved, he had the early church preach repentance. And because Jesus wanted people saved, he had the Apostle Paul write to us, and Peter too, and James, and all of the New Testament, over and over, the message of repentance. And guess what? Jesus still wants people saved. So what, do you, what does he want us to do? Preach 
repentance. And guess what? Guess what? Bible reading, that doesn't save you. And prayer doesn't save you. And witnessing doesn't save you. And following the law doesn't save you. And obeying the New Testament, that doesn't save you. And good works, those don't save you. Baptism, that doesn't save you. Worshiping the Lord, that doesn't save you. And being kind and nice and loving, that doesn't save you either, friends. None of those things save you. Okay? You want to know what saves you? Turning from your sins and turning to Jesus. That's what saves you. Okay? And when you do that, God will take the blood of his Son and cover your sins with that blood. He will atone. Well, he has atoned. And it will be given to you. It will be imputed to you. You will get the righteousness of Christ. And he will take all your ugly sin, all your vile sin on him. That's what saves you. That and that alone. Listen, why is it important to include repentance? Because conviction of sin comes when people are confronted with their sin. Conviction of sin comes when people are confronted with their sin. If people have to turn away from their sin, if they need to know that they're actually guilty, they first have to know what they're guilty of. They have to know that they're guilty, and they have to be confronted with the matter of their guilt. Look at Romans 7. This is what Paul's wrestling with in Romans 7. Verse 7 in Romans chapter 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. I remember when I first got saved, and I remember my discipler, he found out I was doing a particular sin. And he was like, you really shouldn't be doing that. And I was like, really? <laughs> I didn't know. I actually was shocked, and I didn't know, but he, he said, was like, you shouldn't be doing that, and, and here's why. And he pointed me to the scriptures, and guess what? I was convicted. I was confronted with my sin. Here I was walking along just fine, thinking that was fine to do. God was good with that until I was confronted with it, until it was pointed out to me. Okay, That's what Paul's getting at here. And that's what we do. When, when, when repentance, that message is preached, we are confronting people with their sin. That's not popular today. Okay, Sin is seen as like a sickness or an ailment or something like that. Look, sin is death. That's what sin is. Okay? So there's no potion, there's no little self-help book you can read. It's a, it's a death curse on you. And you have to have that death curse taken away from you. And only Jesus can do that. Only he can do it. So you can, you can read all the books you want, you can do all the exercises you want, you can practice your little yoga meditation. That ain't going to help you. It's not going to help you. You need Jesus Okay? He is the one that comes. He is the one that you turn to and you turn away from whatever you've been doing. Your life of vileness and sin. You turn to him. You look at the cross. You trust in Jesus. You renounce your old ways. Amen? And here's the thing. We don't just want... You, you, have you guys heard of the nice guy syndrome? <clears throat> Listen. All the elderly ladies at the church I grew up going to church at, 
they would have, they, they all said, oh, he's such a nice boy. He's such a, well, they didn't know me, but <laughs> he's such a nice boy. <clears throat> now, I, I, I wasn't nice by any stretch, but, but that's what they said. Um, but one thing I definitely was not was I wasn't, I wasn't new. I was not born again. And you can have some of the nicest people in the world. There's nice Hindus out there. There's nice Buddhists. There's nice Muslims. There's nice atheists. Nice agnostics. Many, many, many nice people. Okay? That niceness does not do them any good because that is not the standard by which God holds them. Oh, you get to heaven. Oh, you were nice? Yeah, come on in. Okay? That's not the standard. Okay? That is not the standard that God holds people to. It's not about nice. It's about being new. And let me just say a word to the single people. Look, if you're dating someone or thinking about dating someone and he's a jerk or she's a jerk, well, hopefully that's an easy one for you. Okay? <laughs> get out of there. But if they're, if they're simply nice, that, that's not, that's not going to work for you. Okay? If, if she's simply nice or he's simply nice, that won't work. It, it's not going to be a good match for you. They got to be new. They got to be born again by the Spirit of God. And I've seen godly Christian ladies marry nice guys. I've seen godly Christian guys marry nice ladies. Um, and they were nice. And you can have a nice family for a time, maybe for a long time. But nice doesn't equal new. And you want new. Look at 2 Corinthians. Here's what you want. Here's what we all want. 2 Corinthians 5. Here's what it says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a nice creation. Yeah, that's what it says, right? No. But that's how we act sometimes. Oh, that's so nice. That's so cute. That's so fine. No, if anyone in Christ, is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus wants you new. He wants you completely new. He wants to take you and wash you and redeem you and renew you. That's called born again. And it's something that he does. He wants you new. And he wants you changed. And guess what? Jesus wants 100% of you. Not 50% or 75% or 95%. 98%, 99%. He wants 100% of you. And he wants all of you for himself completely. What are we talking about? A complete dedication to him, to walk in his ways, to serve him, to seek him. Listen, the sweetness of knowing Jesus makes everything in the, the best thing you could possibly imagine doing today or next week or next month makes that pale in comparison to the sweetness of your relationship with Jesus. Now, if you can't say amen to that, then, then you're probably one of those people I was talking about earlier that's asleep. And you need to be awakened. Because the sweetness of Jesus, everything else that the world has to offer, the best, the best possible thing, pales in comparison. falls way short to the sweetness of knowing Jesus. To be saved, to truly be saved, to be one of the fathers, to be adopted into his family, think of what a privilege it is. All the different terms 
God uses in the scriptures to talk about us and to describe us. But he uses what I would say is the most intimate term possible, children, a child. I mean, if you think, those of you who are parents in here, you would literally do just about anything. You would do anything within, within biblical realm for your kids. And maybe you'd even do some unbiblical things. But you would do anything for your kid. Anything. And here God adopts us into his family. And guess what? He was willing to do anything for you, even sending his own son to die for you. And he takes you into his family. And guess what? You get what the other children in the family get. Well, guess what? There's only one child. That's Jesus. That's why it says you're co-heirs with Christ. You're a co-heir. What's an heir? You get the inheritance, right? So, if you get the inheritance, you're getting the inheritance, you're co-heir with Christ, you're getting the inheritance that he gets, that's a pretty good deal, friends. That's a pretty good deal. All right? You weren't even born into that family. You were adopted into it. Co-heirs, you get the inheritance. Man, that is amazing. All these riches, all these gadgets we got, all these, these houses and cars and stuff like that, that pales in comparison to the inheritance we have in Christ. Just read Ephesians 1. The riches that we have in Christ is amazing and it pales to any physical thing we have. It falls way short. And yet we have that. Yet some of us are still walking around not even realizing what we have in Christ. It's like that lady, I think I've told the story before, had all this money when electricity first came about. They were putting it in houses. And she had all this money, so she had the electricity installed, all the wiring put throughout her house. And every night, the rest of the town, her house was up on a little hill, the rest of the town would look up at her house at night, and it'd be dark. And they're like, why is it dark? She's, got, she's the only one with electricity. And finally, someone asked her. She didn't realize she had to flip the switch on. <laughs> Access to it the whole time, right? Right there. She had the access right there, all throughout the house. She didn't, she didn't tap into it. And that's how we are sometimes. Right? We're just walking around, right? And here Jesus has given us all these amazing things. We have this amazing relationship with him. You might not think it's amazing. I hope you do. But it's an amazing relationship to know God himself. That's I mean, literally, it's like, wow, what words do you use? Awe, wonder. It's beautiful. Do you all enjoy the sweetness of your relationship with Jesus? Because it is a sweet thing. I encourage you to do that. Yes, one of the ways you can do that is right here through the Word. It's also through prayer. Those are two of the means of grace that God has given us to help strengthen our relationship with the Lord. But some of us have lost the sweetness aspect of our relationship. I encourage you to come back, to wake up, to repent, get right with the Lord. One of the <clears throat> church, actually the only church I was looking at working with years and years ago when I was in college, 
um, one of my questions to them, I, had, I actually ran across this list. I was interviewing for the youth pastor position, and I had like 15 questions I was asking them. Um, and my, my second to last question, or my last question, actually was, what part do you think repentance plays in salvation? Uh, because someone had told me <clears throat> that um, the church um, might not believe repentance is, is important or necessary or, or anything like that. And that turned out to be the case, sadly. Um, they thought repentance was, was, not, was not necessary. Not only that, even, I don't know if it's even sadder, but it's just as sad. They didn't even think it was necessary for Christians to walk in repentance. For Christians to repent. Now, I don't know about you folks, but, but one of the first things we should do when we get in our prayer closets is spend a little time confessing our sins, Right? And asking for forgiveness and telling the Lord we beseech those things. We, we, we deny those things. We turn away from him. We beseech him. We deny those things. I mean, I got a long way to go in my walk with the Lord. All right? I don't know about you all, but I got a long way to go. And God's still cleansing me and working in me. Sanctification, right? But repentance is not just for the person being converted for the first time, we're called to walk in repentance, a life of repentance, where we're acknowledging that we need the Lord, that we're fallen, that some of the things we've done maybe that day are gross and detestable to God, and it displeases him, and we need to ask for his forgiveness for those things. We need to repent from those things, turn away and turn back to Christ. That's what I'm talking about. That's for us, okay? The conversion is for the unbeliever who needs to hear the message and be confronted with his sin for the first time. But for us believers, we need to be confronted with our sin too. Why? Because we want to be imitators of Christ. We want to be transformed into the image of the likeness of his son. And that doesn't happen if we got sin and sin and sin and sin and sin in our lives. That has to be rooted out. It's still being rooted out of me. And I hope you're endeavoring through the grace of God to have it rooted out of you because that's walking in repentance. So I encourage you, the biblical message, not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well, is to repent. Turn away from your old style. Turn to Christ for life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would grant us a spirit of repentance. I pray for conviction where it is needed. And Lord, we've all fallen way short daily. And we pray, Lord, you'd pour out your grace and your mercy on us that we wouldn't take it for granted. That you'd give us a heart that desires to please you, a heart that says no to the things of the flesh, says no to the things of the world, and says yes to you. So grant us that spirit of repentance that we would confess, Lord, our sins, that you would forgive us. And we thank you, Lord, we have the privilege 
of being here to even talk to you now. That we do have a relationship with you. And just as a child can sin against their own parents, Lord, and be forgiven and still loved in spite of the sin, that's how it is with you regarding us. So we thank you that your love doesn't change for us, that you are faithful, that you are steadfast in showing your love to us, Lord, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, to walk in your ways and to see you, God, for who you are. We love you. Amen.